a pro tip for, for a lot of international students looking for a job. If you're looking for H-1B and if you're looking to stay in the U.S. long term, you might want to consider working for a nonprofit organization. Feeling the American dream calling your name? Hold on to your passport, Global Go-Getters, because the Global Go-Getter podcast is your roadmap to success. From deciphering the school maze to mastering student finances like a financial ninja, we have got your back. Green card woos, house hunting hacks, we've cracked the code on those two. Join me, Kashyap Sigdel, aka Cash, as we navigate the exciting and sometimes quirky path of international life in the U.S., this is your one-stop shop for turning dreams into reality. Buckle up, future scholars, future homeowners, future green card holders. Let's make your American adventure epic. In today's episode, we're going to talk about everything you need to know about H-1B. Before we get started, though, I, I wanted to put a disclaimer out there. I am not an immigration lawyer. Everything I say in this episode is meant for educational purpose only, and I highly recommend that you consult with your company's immigration lawyer regarding your specific case. I'm just a guy that went through the process from OPT to H-1B to green card. So really the intention of this specific episode is to give you a general detailed idea of H-1B so that you know what's going on when your lawyer's going to throw out some fancy terms such as annual cap, LCAs, and others at you. So this episode is going to be, bro- is going to be broken down into eight segments. There's a lot to cover here. So we're going to get started with the first segment, which is the basics of H-1B. H-1B is a non-immigrant visa category designed to bring skilled foreign workers to the U.S. for employment in a specialty occupation. This is typically a temporary job. And specialty occupations could be anything from engineering to finance and everything in between. This typically requires theoretical as well as practical application uh, of a body of highly specialized knowledge. A lot of the times H-1B applicants will need a bachelor's degree or equivalent work experience in a relevant field. So those are your rough basics of what an H-1B visa is. Moving on to eligibility and requirements. So one of the first things you're going to need to even be eligible for H-1B visa is a job offer from a company that is willing to sponsor your H-1B. A lot of the companies in the U.S. don't even want to go into the hassle of hiring an international student. So you want to check with your employer if they are willing to sponsor and you need a job offer from them. As far as the educational qualification, that kind of depends from one job to the other, but the biggest qualifier is going to be your degree's relevance to the job. They're probably not going to sponsor an engineer to work as a nurse and apply H-1B for a nurse 
So your employer is going to play a major role in your H-1B visa. So you definitely need a legitimate job offer that is related to your degree. The other requirement is going to be LCA, which stands for Labor Condition Application. It is a mandatory step for employers. And the, the main intention is, is to ensure that hiring foreign workers under the H-1B program don't adversely affect the U.S. workers or wages, and to also hold employers accountable for complying with labor laws that the U.S. has and to protect the rights of both U.S. and foreign workers. The next segment we're going to talk about is the application process. Here's a high-level breakdown of the H-1B process as of early 2024. The first step is going to be registration, right? So your employer is going to have to electronically register with the USCIS during um, a designated registration period, which typically falls in March, and a lottery system will be used to select registrations for further processing. And there's a cap on the number of H-1B visa issued per year, which we'll talk about um, later in this episode. This initial registration fee is about $10 per applicant. The second step of the process is going to be LCA. So if you are selected in the lottery, well, first, congratulations. The immediate step is going to be LCA or filing LCA with the Department of Labor and receive certification. We kind of talked about this a little bit, but the LCA attests that the employer will pay the prevailing wage for your position and provide working condition that won't adversely affect U.S. workers. There's been fraud cases in the U.S. in the past where they will try and hire a foreign worker and don't pay them as much. So LCA will ensure that the that the foreign worker will be paid according to prevailing wage. Again, we'll later talk in detail about the requirements for the LCA. The third step is going to be filing for the actual H-1B petition. This one's called Form I-129, which I think is petitioned for a non-immigrant worker with USCIS along with the certified LCA. And there are additional documents and filing fees. And this petition must demonstrate that the beneficiary, which is the applicant, meet the H-1B requirements, such as having a bachelor's degree and they have a job in a specialty occupation that requires specialized knowledge and a bachelor's degree. So if you've, if your company has hired a lawyer, which a lot of them will, they've pretty much vetted you ahead of even the job offer. So you should be good there. The fourth step is the actual USCIS processing, um, which involves USCIS reviewing the petition and they may require additional evidence or conduct an interview. I did not go through the interview process there's um, standard processing time, which can take as long as 11 months, which is the range is typically 8 to 11 months, but premium processing can be, can be done for, for an additional fee, and the processing time is about 15 days. So in my case, my company was generous enough to pay for the premium processing, so I got my d- decision within a week or so. This next step is going to be visa is issuance, right? If the petition is approved and the applicant is outside of the U.S., then they'll have to apply for H-1B 
at a U.S. embassy in their home country. Um, but if the person or if, if the applicant is in the U.S., then you change the status. So what that basically means is the beneficiary or the applicant will file for a uh, change of status to H-1B with USCIS. And when I say the beneficiary will file, I'll actually, I actually mean the lawyer that's representing the applicant will, will file. So, so your company is going to hire an immigration firm or immigration lawyer that's gonna do all these details. So a lot of the times, all you'll be asked are documents and you'll be asked to review the applications or documents, but you don't have to know all of these steps in detail because your immigration lawyer is going to take care of that. That's what they're here for. Some of the key points to remember are that the H-1B cap is currently set at 65,000 regular visas and 20,000 for those with advanced degree from U.S. universities. So basically what that means is that there are 85,000 visas total per year and 20,000 of those are specifically for people that have masters or PhDs. And the 65,000 is everyone. The H-1B, it is highly recommended that you work with an experienced immigration attorney to ensure that you have a smooth and successful H-1B filing process. A lot of the companies, especially if they've never really hired an international student, I won't really know a whole lot about the H-1B process. And as an international student, you're not expected to know a lot about H-1B. So, so your company, if they've promised to file for your H-1B, will work with an immigration attorney and, and they'll know all these, all these steps that, I, that I've talked about so far. Someone asked me the other day, hey, when should I apply for H-1B? When should I push my company to apply for H-1B after I start a job? And the answer to that question is, it depends, right? So for instance, if you graduate in May, then you can't really apply for H-1B right off the bat, right? So you're going to have to wait until next March before you can actually put your name in the lottery. When I say you, you, you're putting your name in the lottery, I actually mean your company working with a lawyer to put your name in the lottery. But if you're graduating in January, you are eligible to apply for H-1B in March. However, if you have a written contract with your company, and this will be part of your job offer that they are going to sponsor your H-1B, then maybe a couple months in, start planting the seed and start talking to your direct manager or to HR saying, hey, it's say it's July, filing the H-1B is kind of far out into the future, but let them know that you're thinking about H-1B and let them know that, hey, when the time comes, you can tell them, hey, I know it's kind of far out in, into the future, but I'm still, I'm thinking about H-1B and if there's anything the lawyer's going to need from me, I'd be more than happy to kind of jumpstart the process and give any documents that they might. So in the next segment, we're going to talk about duration extensions and how an H-1B is a dual intent visa. So H-1B visas are typically granted for an initial period of up to three years. You can extend your H-1B and 
you can stay in the US on H-1B for a maximum of up to six years. H-1B, which is kind of the fun part of H-1B, unlike your F-1 or J-1, um, H-1B is a dual intent visa, which means that you can pursue permanent residency without jeopardizing your non-immigrant status. So if you're currently under OPT, you have an F-1 visa, and that is a non-immigrant visa. When you have H-1B, it is a dual intent visa, which is why a lot of companies will say, hey, we'll apply for a green card after you get your H-1B so that there's no conflict of, of interest or there's no conflict in terms of your visa stat. This may or may not be applicable to a lot of the listeners today, but the next segment, segment is going to talk about dependents and H-1B visas. Uh, typically, spouses and unmarried children under 21 can accompany an H-1B visa holder on, H1, on H-4 visas. There are some limitations, though, particularly the in- inability to work in the U.S. So here's a super quick breakdown of the eligibility requirements for H-4 work authorization. So the H-1B visa holder must be the principal beneficiary of the approved Form I-140, which is Immigrant Petition for Alien Worker. This means that the H-1B holder has already begun the process of applying for green card in the U.S. So with no intentions of mudding the water, and we're going to create another episode where we're probably going to name it everything you need to know about a green card, where we're going to talk about PERM, I-140, 485, right? So I-140 that I just talked about is one of the steps of the green card process. And once an H-1B visa holder is past that I-140 step, uh, this means that this will also make their dependents eligible to work in the U. The other requirement um, is if the H-1B visa holder has been granted H-1B status under a specific section, I think I read somewhere it was 106 A and B under, I think it's called the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act of 2000, um, which basically, if they fall into that category, this also, they can also, their dependents can work. So, but this typically applies to a specific group of H-1B visa holders who were previously um, subject to a visa retrogression limitation. So anyways, even if you don't, if you, even if you didn't understand any of what I said in the, in the last 15 or so seconds, um, ask your lawyer if you have dependents, if they can work, and they'll be able to answer a question. But just understand that as part of H-1B, you can have dependents that can live with you and might even be able to work while you work. The next segment uh, we're going to talk about Um, is going to be regarding employer obligations and LCA, so labor condition application. So the biggest responsibility of your employer is going to be providing fair wages and proper working conditions in in USCIS's eyes, right? So they want to make sure all of those are taken care of before they give you H-1B. So some key requirements, right? So the first one is going to be by Department of Labor, where the employer will file a form, it's called ETA 9035, which is the LCA, with the Department of Labor, and they'll have to receive certification before they can file for H-1B. 
and the Department of Labor is going to review your LCA for compliance with any labor regulations, which kind of falls into fair wage and proper working conditions uh, that I previously talked about. And there are things such as, like I said, right, wages, working conditions, and um, that they have to meet. But in addition, there's also the employers must, must also attest that there is no eligible U.S. worker. Um, that is, they must also provide notice to U.S. workers about the intent to hire an H-1B workers before filing the LCA. Your company is going to work with a lawyer to take care of that. So there isn't really anything you need to do on your end. But just understand that um, there are steps that the employer is going to have to take before they can file for H-1B. There are some record keeping that the employer has to do. They must maintain public access files with documentation regarding the LCA and H-1B workers. So your immigration lawyer is going to work with your company to take care of this, but just understand that there's a lot that goes behind the scenes that you won't have directly access to for you to be even eligible um, to apply for H-1B. But to talk about timeline, LCAs can be filed up to six months before the intended employer start date. And Department of Labor typically processes LCAs within about seven business days. And once certified, the LCA is valid for up to three years. And if the employer is if the employer fails to comply with the LCA requirements, there are some serious consequences. So, you know, such as fines, back wages, they can be barred from future H-1B sponsorships and there might be and there will be rejections of your, of the H-1B petition. So this is something the employers take very seriously along with the immigration attorney. So they do, the, do their due diligence ahead of applying for the h one The next segment we're going to talk about is changing employers and portability. So what H-1B portability allows for an H-1B recipient to change employers while maintaining their H-1B status. I mean, there are many things to consider, but one of the things you want to consider is the H-1B cap, right? So if your employer is not cap exempt, and I'll and later on in this episode, I'll talk about what that, what that is, uh, you have to consider the timing of H-1B lottery and registration, which is, again, typically in March, to ensure that they submit the your application before the deadline. For some reason, say if you're if you've received H-1B, you've been laid off, you have 60-day grace period after leaving your company to legally stay and find a new job. And there's also some visa transfer processing times. So basic processing times for H-1B transfers can can vary. So you'd want to plan ahead and consider potential delays to avoid any any gaps in your employment authorization. But the biggest thing you're going to want to consider is if you're leaving company A that sponsored your H-1B to go to company B that is willing to sponsor, then you should be good, right? You, they, all they would have to do, you don't have to go to the lottery again. Company B is going to have to file for your H-1B. But before you search for company B, you or company C, before you search for a new company, you want to you want to verify with your new company if they are willing to 
file for H1B because they're going to have to do the entire process again minus the lottery because you've already been. Your new employer is going to have um, LCA requirements, labor condition application requirements similar to your previous employer did. So you want to ensure that your new employer fulfills the LCA requirements regarding wages, working conditions, and notice to the U.S. workers like we talked about. And the new position must also qualify that your specialty occupation requires a bachelor's degree or something equivalent, right? A lot of the times, one of the reasons you might want to switch to a different employer is because they might pay you better, right? If, if your job responsibilities and title does not really change from one employer to the other, um, you, should, you should be good. And your new employer is also going to have to pay you according to the prevailing wage, Um for that position and the location as determined by the DOL, which is why they'll do the whole LCA thing. And the biggest thing is you definitely wanna make sure your visa is still current and remains valid throughout the job change process to avoid any complications. You wanna be mindful of that 60 day grace. The last segment we're gonna talk about today um, are annual caps and lottery um, caps, right? So like we previously talked about, there's a annual gap of 60,000 regular visas, 65,000 regular visas, and 20,000 for those with advanced. What you may or may not have known is some jobs are cap exempt. So for instance, my spouse worked for a healthcare system and they fall into the nonprofit category. So what that basically means is she did not have to go through the lottery process. All she had to do was talk to her boss and her boss's boss to align on when they wanted to file for H-1B. And once they file for H-1B, they, they still had to do the LCA and all the other steps we talked about, but they didn't have to go through the lottery, right? At, at that point, is not necessarily a lottery-based system. It's more in regards to that specific applicant and if the employer do the, did their due diligence to prove that the employee was eligible for that job. So this might be a, a pro tip for, for a lot of international students looking for a job. If you're looking for H-1B and if you're looking to stay in the U.S. long term, you might want to consider working for a nonprofit organization such that they can file for your H-1B without that annual cap that a for-profit organization would have. For instance, I worked for a for-profit organization, right? I had to go through the lottery. And I think I shared in my, in one of my previous podcasts that, you know, my three years of OPT, first two, I didn't get them. I got my H-1B on my last year, which meant that at that point, it was basically a gamble, right? You know what, what lottery is. You just throw your name in the pot and the U.S. government picks your name, boom, voila, you can apply for H-1B and you'll most likely get it. If, but if they don't pick your name, then you won't be selected and you won't get your H-1B, but you have a higher chance of getting H-1B if you go with a nonprofit organization. So that's definitely something you want to keep in your back pocket, especially if you're filtering out companies, especially if you're filtering out different job offers that you want to they wanna be mindful of. The last thing I'm going to leave you with today is, is staying informed. For me, the USCIS website, I don't really have access to podcasts like this 
when I was doing my research, and which is one of the main reasons why I, I even decided to make this podcast. There are some YouTube channels that you can follow that might be uh, helpful to you. The other resource for me was Reddit. I was on the USCIS Reddit website a lot. There are some Facebook groups. But just, just stay informed. Just talk to your fellow co-workers that might be going through the same process as you. Talk to your seniors that might have gone through the H-1B process and what the process was like for them. I would ask a million questions to my immigration lawyer. So just stay informed about the policy changes and updates affecting H-1B visas. The online registration system is a relatively new system that they introduced a few years back. So USCIS does not change the underlying law and how H-1B is carried out, they may, but they might make few tweaks to the system and how applications are handled, the processing times. So their website, Reddit, Facebook group, podcasts like these are a great resource. And that's a wrap for today's episode of the Global Go-Getter podcast. We hope you found valuable insights and tips to fill your journey as an international student in the United States. Remember, whether you're navigating the intricacies of finding the perfect school, mastering personal finances, or dreaming of putting down roots with that dream home, your goals are within reach. Stay tuned for more episodes packed with practical advice, inspiring stories, and the occasional dose of humor. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. Keep those questions coming, and let's continue this conversation on our socials. You're not alone on this adventure, fellow go-getters. Until next time, keep dreaming big and thriving in the U.S.